0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: It might seem strange, but feral Brumbies are a regular feature on the landscape of Curtis Island on the Great Barrier Reef.
2: They're just part and parcel of the island. You've got got the ocean, you've got the the scenery, the beaches, and you've got the, the brumbies and the roos.
1: But the feral animals are destructive to turtle habitat. More on what's happening about that and a scientific experiment underway to see if oysters can become part of the food chain again in Noosa.
3: Historically, Noosa had a lot of oysters and up until the early 1900s, the oysters were prevalent. But in the last hundred years or so, they've been pretty much completely gone.
1: I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Whadjuk Country. El in the East Kimberley of Western Australia is one of those destinations that's on so many Australian bucket lists of places to visit. Think stunning deep red gorges, rainforests, thermal springs and cascading waterfalls. A big part of this wilderness park was a pastoral lease for the last 120 years, which Grant Wilkins, the chief executive of G'day Group that runs the property, says had its drawbacks.
4: I took my family up there last year, and it's quite frustrating because you're sitting in a in a, an amazing uh, experience on on the Chamberlain Gorge, and you're listening to a, a, a tour guide talk about cows and yeah, you know, which is an important part of the history of of El Questro. But you know, you'd, you'd much rather listen to some traditional you know cultural stories from you know even from a traditional an indigenous person would be amazing too. Actually, being that guide rather than a an English backpacker.
1: Today, the famous Kimberley Outback Resort reached a major land deal with traditional owners. About 165,000 hectares of land at El Questro has been a pastoral lease, as I said, for 120 years. It will now be handed back to the traditional owners and converted to freehold and reserve land, which will allow for cultural tourism and traditional land management. Our reporter, Ted O'Connor, is in Cononera. Ted, can you explain what today's agreement means for El Questro?
0: Oh, yes, this is a major agreement that has been in the works for quite some time now and just to put it simply it means that cattle will slowly be removed from El Cuestro and instead instead the land will go from a pastoral lease uh, to a, reserve, a conservation reserve and this paves the way for the traditional owners who come under the umbrella of the uh, Willigan Aboriginal Corporation um, so one of the groups, the Narragan people in particular, uh, to manage this land, to look after the wildlife to also do proper fire management and weed management and to really improve the health of the country.
1: So what has it meant, Ted, that it you know, the pastoral lease itself for the tourism operation, how did that play out for people who are on the property?
0: Well I've visited a number of times every dry season because it is, it is fantastic to have El Questro just down the road. And Grant really hit the nail on the head in the intro. You're camping along the river, you're walking around one of the most beautiful places in the country, and then there's just cattle around. Um, and it just doesn't quite... A lot of people say it doesn't quite feel right, and I tend to agree. And this is something that, uh, as Grant had flagged, he's not really that happy with. Um, and that they, they just sort of... It, El has evolved over time into a tourism facility and having cattle there a lot of people just don't feel like it's a good fit and the other thing he mentioned too which is something a lot of uh, people who go out there comment on is the complete lack of indigenous cultural tourism or interpretive boards or just a general sense of who the traditional owners are and what exactly their role is with the country because when you go to El Cuestro at the moment you don't really get a sense of what that is and A lot of people at the moment do express disappointment about that. You can see Grant in his comment there really wants to change that.
1: And has he given any indication of how that might
0: change? Uh, Yes, so listening to Grant today and also Willigan's uh, general manager... Um, Paul Lane so he's talked about that they'd be looking to create more sort of cultural tour guides there would be also indigenous jobs uh, ranger jobs looking after weed management and also doing um, fire burning to um, create carbon credits so just a quick explanation Um, you can generate income by your fire management reducing the amount of um, late dry season fires than there was in a baseline 10 years ago. And those credits, they'll sell back, essentially give back to El Questro and El Questro can aim to be carbon neutral. And that carbon fire management improves the health of the country if there's not those devastating um, late dry season fires. So there is a number of opportunities for Indigenous people, not just on a fort like giving tour guides, but also just that land management of such a really big area um, well over 100, I think it's 160,000 hectares of land.
1: Well, let's have a listen to what G'day Group CEO Grant Wilkins said a little earlier on today about this agreement.
4: The tenure just wasn't quite right, the way that it's been structured. So it's been an uncomfortable position probably for government, for um, you know, Western Australian government, and it's also been a little bit uncomfortable for ourselves as a tourist operator running a, a pastoral lease. So the benefit of this of this transaction, I suppose, is that where else can you find a win-win-win where the government actually solves a, a long-standing pastoral lease that you know doesn't quite fit? You've got a, a tourism operator like us which gets tenure and uh, is able to invest into into the property and engage much further with our traditional owners. And then you've got you know the biggest benefit, which is the Willingen and uh, corporation and they're able to actually take control and, and own the land on a, on a conditional freehold basis and you know give the land back to to the rightful owners.
1: Ted, it's not often that you hear a land deal as a win-win-win like that. And what did the traditional owners say about this deal?
0: Well, Paul Lane said it had overwhelming uh, support from Willigan people, um, people who come under the Willigan Aboriginal uh, Corporation. And interestingly, he said that uh, this could have broader implications for Willigan area, um, the Willigan Native Title area, all through the Central Kimberley, which has incredible scenery. If you ever to drive along the Gib River Road, there's lots of gorges, um, you know, rivers, really untouched country. Um, but there is, that is along, along a lot of cattle stations as well. So there might be some cattle stations that are doing some, you know, small amount of tourism that might want to increase this tourism footprint and maybe copy Old Questro's lead. And that could mean that um, this could pave the way for more pastoral lease changes.
1: So it could be a kind of litmus test for similar deals.
0: Yes, that's right. And if you talk, I've been talking to people around this deal before it was signed and they said it's been a bit of a change of attitude from the government. Previously, its view was, well, if you get rid of a pastoral lease, you're not getting it back again. But now they're like, well, what? Well, what is the value of a pastoral lease? Um, you know, sometimes running cattle in this sort of area of central North Kimberley can be quite difficult. It's it's quite remote getting cattle to um, getting cattle to market. And um, these tourism, a lot of cattle stations already do tourism. So if there's ways to sort of turn that land into a reserve, see more Indigenous, uh, you know, cultural interpretation and land management, we might see, um, Willigan certainly expects to see this type of deal um, followed and be replicated in other parts of the Kimberley. So it'll be interesting to see what happens.
1: It's certainly a shift. Ted O'Connor in Kalinara. Thanks for chatting to Australia Wide.
0: Thank you. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio.
1: And you're with me, Sinead Mangan. Let's head now to Curtis Island on the southern end of the Great Barrier Reef in Queensland. The reef is best known for its phenomenal marine life, but on Curtis Island, it's not unusual to see Brumbies galloping along its pristine beaches. Feral animals like the Brumbies are causing damage to the habitats of critically endangered turtle species, so a culling programme is now underway to control numbers. So far, it's been a huge success with the population of an endangered native bird species reaching its highest number ever recorded. The programme has seen the removal of feral animals like horses, cattle, pigs and foxes and rangers say the native flora and fauna is thriving as a result. Rachel McGee has this story.
5: To locals on Curtis Island off the central Queensland coast, it's not unusual to see wild horses roaming the beach, bushland and even through the streets of the small township of Southend.
2: They're just part and parcel of the island. I mean, you've, got, you've got the ocean, you've got the, the scenery, the beaches and you've got the, the brumbies and the roos.
5: While striking to see, the horses are part of a feral animal problem on the island impacting the native flora and fauna. Capricorn Coast Management Unit Senior Officer Damon Shearer says the Queensland Parks and Wildlife Service started a pest management program on the island in the early 2000s.
6: So feral animals on the park over there cause an extensive amount of damage to, to key habitats to these critical species like the yellow chat and the flatback turtles um, as well as you know a lot of migratory species of bird that come through the area. So we need to protect those natural values uh, to make sure those animals are, have the best chance of survival. So, we run a number of feral animal control programs throughout, often throughout the year, targeting those key habitats and protecting those areas.
5: It targets feral horses, cattle, foxes, pigs, cats and dogs through aerial shooting, which a spokesperson from the Department of Environment and Science says is conducted by skilled, experienced members of staff from helicopters. Mr Shearer says the removal of feral animals has had phenomenal results in restoring the island's diverse array of wildlife
6: around June areas, uh, there was grazing and also just trampling of the June areas. They, they've regenerated. We've also seen uh, in the north and also the various lagoons and, and fresh areas through the island where we're seeing major impact from grazing. Um, the pigs were doing an incredible amount of damage to the, the reed beds in the north, which is a critical habitat for the yellow chat. Um, pretty much every year that area was getting turned over. It looked just turned to mud pretty much. And now it's uh, a thriving wetland environment, not only for the yellow chat. Tap- but also insects and reptiles, uh, migratory birds that come
5: in, brolgars, uh, these sort of animals. It's It's been an incredible transformation. Over the past four years, rangers have noted a significant increase in the endangered Capricorn yellow chat population. Research from the Department of Environment and Science shows the species population was down to single digits on the island between 2005 and 2011 due to the impacts of feral animals and the ongoing drought but it recorded its highest numbers in the 2021-2022 recording period at 73 yellow chats. A
6: few years ago it would be um, particularly up in the wetlands for the yellow chat you know they were they were surviving in marginal country because the amount of vegetation that was being grazed and also uprooted it didn't leave a lot left surviving and now there's species of uh, reeds up there that we didn't even know existed on the plane have have come back and provide great cover for the yellow chat and the population has stabilized
5: the department's research also shows there's been minimal flatback turtle clutch loss from predators such as foxes, wild dogs and feral pigs, through the targeted QPWS pest control. Conservation scientist with the Queensland University of Technology, Justine Shaw, works on the ecology and management of Antarctic and island ecosystems. Dr Shaw says while culling invasive species can be controversial the long-term benefits are huge.
7: No-one likes to see animals being killed, and that's one of the challenges in invasive species um, culling is that, you know, you're killing invasive animals. One of the things that that helps people understand the benefits of of doing these controls is we've seen from many other islands around Australia and around the world... But if the commitment is made to get rid of those invasive species, the benefits to native animals and vegetation are huge. It's really important that we don't lose sight of the end prize. And while it's uncomfortable for culling to occur, the long-term gains are
1: are enormous. Dr Justine Shaw ending that story from Rachel McGee.
8: Lend us your ears and experience a world of audio content with ABC Listen. A world of sound. Like Expanse, Pink Diamond Heist. How
1: millions of dollars of diamonds were stolen in the middle of the bush and somehow smuggled to Europe.
8: And dive deep beneath the surface of three crooked cops known as the Rat Pack. In, dig, sirens are coming. Dorothy handed Hallahan the money and when he walked off, the undercovers swooped. The ABC Listen app. Lend me your ears. Download it now from your app store.
1: Now let's head to Noosa in Queensland, a part of Australia known for its top-notch restaurants and foodie experiences. Oysters may be a regular item on a menu in Noosa, but it's been a long time since any of those oysters were harvested locally. But a government-funded programme could change all that, with hundreds of kilograms of oysters being introduced to the waterways around Noosa to bring back a once-thriving natural population from the brink of extinction. Meg Bolton has the story.
9: A booming property market snakes through Noosa's waterways, but beneath the sparkling surface, a different population is dwindling. Historically, Noosa
3: had a lot of oysters and up until the early 1900s, the oysters were prevalent.
9: But in the last 100 years or so, have been pretty much completely gone. A national project is bolstering oyster numbers, adding them to new man-made reefs across local waterways. Here in the Noosa River, we're restoring four different locations. So here at Tawanton
3: is one. There's also Goat Island and two locations in what we call Noosa Sound, which is
9: lower Weber Creek. Adult oysters were taken from the Noosa River to reproduce at the Bribie Island Research Facility. Scientist Max Wingfield says the Noosa project is a world first.
8: This is the, the first time Sydney rock oysters have been settled onto, onto shell to go into reef restoration projects. So there's a little bit of learning, it's a new, new process. The aim is to produce from, from the first hatchery run, one and a half million spat to go out onto the oyster reefs, so that equates to close to 500 of these bags of the oyster shell.
9: Breeding oysters in captivity is a hands-on process. Scientists alter the temperature and salinity of the water to bring on reproduction.
8: When they spawn, you can tell the males from the females, and then we just manage the fertilisation. So it's natural spawning, but um, when you've got a lot of oysters in a small amount of water, you've got to make sure that you get good genetic diversity from the oysters that are spawning but don't allow too much sperm to cause polyspermy or over-fertilisation of the eggs. So it's... uh, mixing the the eggs and the sperm at the right ratio, letting the eggs hatch into larvae, and then we grow them through in these tanks for three to four weeks through their free swimming planktonic larval stage. And then when the oysters are ready to stop swimming and turn into little baby oysters, we let the, the larvae settle and attach onto shell.
9: Those shells are recycled, collected from local businesses across the Noosa Shire. Noosa Yacht and Rowing Club's head chef, Brandon Hanak, says thousands of shells are being diverted from landfill every week.
6: There's probably about 20 to 40 dozen oysters collected per day here at the Yacht Club, and up to 30 dozen, 40 dozen per day on the weekends. Honestly, they normally go in the bin, they go go into landfill, so this is a, a really good way to recycle the shells and it's probably the first thing I've seen in my career that you know people are actually doing something with them, so it's good to see.
9: The Nature Conservancy aims to protect and restore 60 shellfish reefs across Australia to become the first nation in the world to recover a critically endangered marine ecosystem. TNC's Megan Connell says oysters not only increase the amount of aquatic life but also the health of the river system.
3: An adult oyster can filter about a bathtub of water a day. As we found out at the hatchery, even the really tiny oysters actually do filter the water really effectively as well. So these oysters will provide a water quality improvement activity. But the main reason why we're doing this is to improve the biodiversity of the river, to create habitat and also just to pr- improve the overall health of the river for now into the future for all of the people who live here and obviously all of the animals that live in the Noosa River as well.
9: Noosa is the only location in Queensland that's part of the national program, but it's hoped more projects in the Sunshine State will soon be underway. Oysters are our ecosystem
3: engineers. They form the basis of the oyster reef ecosystem. They are the food for a range of fish species and they'll also bring a number of other species in to live in the reef as well. There's no restrictions on people fishing or collecting from our reefs, however we're encouraging the local community to let the reef restoration process occur. It's really important to leave the reefs alone as much as we can because then it'll allow the natural ecosystem restoration process to occur.
1: Megan Connell from The Nature Conservancy finishing that report from Meg Bolton.
10: You're listening to Australia Wide,
1: On ABC Radio. One of the key features of the NDIS is access to therapy, and the form it takes depends on the needs of the recipient. The mother of a boy living with autism on the mid north coast of New South Wales found that equine therapy made a huge difference to him. But after three years, the support was taken away and was only restored after a 12-month battle. Reporter Wiri Asati spoke to mother Kelly Delaforce and Rod O'Malley, who runs the equine-assisted learning program, with his wife, Deb O'Malley.
2: So now we're going to ask him to go around in a circle. OK, so we're going to point...
10: Rod O'Malley is guiding Riley on how to control the horse using only his energy and body gestures.
2: And we're going to focus on where you want him to go and with the energy, you're just going to guide him, okay?
10: Riley Stewart has autism level two which can mean anxiety and meltdowns in group activities but when he's with the horses his mother says there's a noticeable calm. Some
7: days at home he'll be really hyperactive and we'll go out to horses and it'll be
10: an instant calming. Riley is sometimes non-verbal but even that can change when he starts his equine therapy.
2: He comes out and he's reluctant to speak and he will just do sign language. Within five to ten minutes, he's chatting away, talking to the horses, talking to the staff, and talking to other clients, which is a really big thing for him. But all that
10: changed when Riley's funding for community participation was cut. Refusing to accept the decision, Kelly Delaforce went to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal and won.
7: Yeah, it was well over 12 months of a fight um, to be able to achieve it. It's a lot of hard work. When you've got a child that's got special needs to start with, it's a lot of work.
10: The National Disability Insurance Agency acknowledges the rights of any participant or their family to seek a review or appeal any decision made by their NDIS funding.
2: Uh, We've had quite a bit of a struggle uh, trying to get them to recognise it as a a therapy, but we're seeing their results.
7: The results are amazing to be able to get him away from device time, out into the real world and actually achieving real world goals.
10: The National Disability Insurance Agency says they are committed to working more closely with participants, being more transparent and delivering a faster and fairer dispute
2: resolution process. NDIS have recognised us as a business but don't really want to send the clients to us, (laughs) or fund the clients. So it's a little bit of a catch-22 situation where they're recognising the business but not the activity.
10: Deb and Rod O'Malley were instrumental in helping build a case to prove to NDIS the benefits of equine therapy because they could see how much it was helping him.
2: We've had a couple of little breakthroughs with the NDIS. We've had to go through different processes through advocates to fight for Um, some of the kids to get the funding that they need.
10: Equine therapy can be covered by NDIS if the participant can prove that the treatment is related to their disability and is likely to be of benefit.
2: Quite a few of the OTs, uh, psychologists and um, even psychiatrists are sending a few people out to us um, because we're doing uh, the practical side of what those professionals are doing in their offices. So um, we have kids that come out here and just learn how to breathe, to relax themselves. If that person's having a bad day, uh, down in the dumps, the horses and ponies will usually cuddle up to them and, and make them feel better. If they're cranky, the horses won't come near them and they've got to learn to get rid of all that anger so it teaches them how to regulate their emotions as well.
7: He's going to OT, he's going to speech, which was all funded by NDIS and they were happy to fund that. But as a part of my argument was how does he put that into practice, into a real-world situation without that practical hands-on side of things?
10: The original decision not to fund the therapy was based on the available evidence which did not demonstrate how the supports were different from mainstream horse riding lessons.
7: One week we might be on the back of a horse doing what would look like a normal horse riding lesson. But then the next week they could have some face paint out and fulfilling those sensory needs of just doing hand painting on the horses, um, brushing the horses. On a day where he's having a meltdown, it could just be sitting with the horses and patting them and just being around them as
10: a calming tool for him. But Kelly Delaforce says there's no way Riley can attend mainstream lessons due to the dangers related to his needs. It could be like
7: nine other children on the back of a horse and they're not able to give those children the support that they need because my child is being a distraction. To have that one-on-one support makes a big difference for him because he's not got the distractions of... Other children being around the noises and the movements of people and things like that, which can all
10: be such a big destruction for Riley. Appeal cases before the tribunal for NDIS plans have almost tripled since the previous year, and they are taking longer to resolve due to an increased caseload. So that's it. And guide him. That's the way even if he needs to come back. Kelly Delaforce hopes that the benefits of these programs will be recognised so that others don't have to fight as hard as she
1: has. We're Sati, with that story. And that's Australia Wide for this Wednesday. Remember, you can podcast Australia Wide whenever you want to. Just head to ABC's Listen app and subscribe there. The more subscribers, the merrier. It's better for the program. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you have a lovely evening. Cheerio.